evening. How's everybody doing? Everybody doing well? Did I mess you up on the chairs? Good. No, no, no. Um, that's the way we measure the chairs out. We, uh, we measure the distance um, by, you know, just, well, you can see how we do it, but it, um, yeah, I, I t- I'm going to tell you, I, I'm going to let y'all in on some insider baseball, okay? Insider baseball. Sometimes I move, well, first of all, I'm a furniture mover. I, I, I've, I like things to stay the same. Vicki, do you like things to stay the same? I like them to stay the same, but I have to move stuff around too. After a while, like I have to move the furniture around. Something's got to change. Like I like living in the same house, but every now and again I've got to rearrange the furniture. That drives Karen a little bit crazy. But sometimes I move the furniture around. Sometimes I'll split the aisles or whatever just because I need something different to look at. And, and, and I like it that it kind of messes with y'all a little bit too. Because people, listen, listen, you think of it, we're creatures of habit, right? And I, I'm a major creature of habit. In fact, so much to the point that if my habits are out of whack, it really messes with me a little bit. But um, people, they come in and they see the same thing over and again. They sit beside the same people. They do the same old things. Sometimes you just need a different look at things. And... Um, there's not a whole lot you can do in a building necessarily to change it up. Expect, you know, a space like this. So sometimes chairs just get moved around. And I was walking through here this uh, this afternoon. I had an ADHD moment because I'm big time. I'm off the chart, ADHD, literally off the chart. Like um, when James was about 12 or 13, he was tested for ADHD and uh, because he was 12, he had to have uh, an adult, uh, a parent in there with him for the test. And so I'm listening to the questions. I'm going, man, this is me right here. <laughs> and uh, at, the, at the end of the testing, I asked the doctor if, uh, if I could get tested. Do, you, do adults ever get tested for stuff like this? And he said, well, sure. So I came back a few days later. I did the test. A week or so later, got the results back. And the doctor sat down with me, and uh, he he said, okay, Jimmy, this side, not ADHD. This column, sort of, maybe. This right column, yeah, you're ADHD. He said, you're over here. He said, I've never seen anyone in my life that or in in my professional career, I've never seen someone so ADHD as you are. So hopefully that explains a few things to you guys. It explained a lot to me. I'll tell you, I thought that something was wrong with me for most of my life. Um, like in college, reading a book, I couldn't read a book. I had to read sometimes three books at a time because I couldn't focus on one of them long enough to just read an hour of that book. So I would read five or ten minutes of one book and then I would switch to the other and then switch to the other and then go back and forth and so um, make a long story short and get out of my personal life here a little bit 
Uh, I thank the Lord every day for Adderall. <laughs> Brian. Moving the chairs around. That's why they get moved around. That's why they get moved around. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't want you to think there was like some great strategy or that I was even in here praying about it. And they got moved around. It just, it's a whole lot more carnal than that. Yep. Well, it's, uh, it's great to see you guys tonight. Welcome. Um, great group of people here tonight. And uh, Diego, are we recording this? Good deal. Um, I, I love the fact that so many folks have come out tonight, uh, a, a Wednesday night, a January night. It's cold outside, and we're in here to learn about church history, and uh, that excites me. How many of you like church history? Well, let's, let's, don't, let's don't call it church history. Not, not at this point. We'll, we'll get to that later. How many of you just like history? Just show hands. And I would think it would be most of the people in this room. But you know, um, statistics show, I think um, I saw maybe uh, two or three months ago that high school students were uh, questioned about this. And literally one out of every two high school student just hated history. That was their, that was their worst subject and the subject that they least liked. And, uh, and it's, it's about one out of every three adults. You know, once you get out of high school or you get out of college, you know, people start watching um, A&E or they start watching uh, documentaries. And so people sort of get interested in history a little bit that way. So it's not necessarily 50% of everyone asked whether they like history or not hates history. It's, it gets a little bit better than that. But here, here's what I would say. I would say that people are drawn to history. Even most people who say that they don't like history are still drawn to it. And uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a reader. I love to, to read. I'm not much on fiction reading. Or, or is, it, is it nonfiction? I read lots of history and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not much on reading novels. I had to read all the classics in college and, and stuff like that. So every now and again, I'll pick up, you know, the Red Badge of Courage and reread that or something. But I, I do like other forms of media. Like, I love movies. Uh, I like a good TV show or a good TV series. And Paul, the Curse of Oak Island, it's about to drive me crazy. They're they going to have to do something. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And so I, I literally sat last night at the end of it. I had it recorded, and we, we watched it. And I thought, I literally know no more than I knew from the, um, the little trailer about that night's show. But I, I like to sit and watch a, a show like that, but I love movies. And if you, if you think about movies just over the last decade or last two decades, think about the most popular movies. Many of them are based on historical events. Um, Apollo 13, Schindler's List, Braveheart, uh, Titanic, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay, I was just checking. No, that's, that's not a real one, but it is kind of funny. A couple, couple years ago, Karen and I were in Scotland, and uh, we were on what they call a wee little bus, <laughs> and um, 
we were traveling out through the countryside, and we stopped at this castle, and it was the castle they used in the Holy Grail. And and nobody, our tour guide knew because he pointed it out, but nobody cares. I mean, there are castles everywhere, and people over there didn't care a whole lot about the movie, and uh, so there's nobody there. I'm thinking, man, there should be reenactments on the balconies, and there should be all sorts of things, but no. Netflix, anybody watch Netflix? If, if, you, if you think about some of the most popular shows on Netflix right now, they're based on, on historical events. Um, the Crown, which uh, I thought was pretty good. And uh, I'm a little bit ashamed to say this with so many guys in the room, but my wife and my daughter have sort of gotten me into the call of the midwife. Men, don't judge me. If you haven't seen it, don't, don't judge me. <laughs> but both of these are, are based on historical events, times, and people uh, that are in Great Britain. So see, we, we're drawn to history. We, we want to know it. We want to understand it. And, and the problem, I think, is that too many people have been taught history by teachers who are either boring or really boring, and by boring, I don't just mean that it's, um, you know, there's no excitement in it. But to me, what makes history boring is when there's no connection to real life and, and where you are today. Like, what does it matter? Is, is history just a bunch of dead people from, you know, antiquity? Uh, is it just about dates and places, uh, dates from you know, way back when and places that you've never been? Or, or is there a connection to where you are today and the era that you live in today? So I, I can't promise that over the next few weeks, and I don't know how many weeks we're going to be talking about here, but I can't promise you that over the next few weeks there will, there will not be some, some boring moments there, there might be. I'm going to try really hard to make this as enjoyable and as entertaining as church history can be. But I'm really going to work hard at showing the connection, showing why things matter, and helping you see where learning about this one thing helps you understand what's going on over here. You're going to hear me say this probably several times tonight, but you're going to hear me say this all throughout this this uh, this series. History doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's a context for the the major events or the events that we would call the major events in history. There's a context for that. Um. If you know the context, that helps you understand the events a little bit better. If you understand what's, what's going on around certain things, it, it just helps you understand it better. That's the best way I know how to say it. Just to show of hands, how many of you know the name Karl uh, Marx? Yeah, most people do. Karl Marx was a German philosopher and a social revolutionary. He lived in the 19th century. He wrote the Communist Manifesto, and 
He's thought of as the, uh, the father of communism. And Karl Marx once said, a people without a heritage are easily persuaded. And what that means is people who don't know history, people don't know, who don't know their history, people who, who don't know where they come from, People who don't have a sense of their roots, they're easily persuaded. And, you know, not to get political, but I I think about this right now in in our own culture. So many of the uh, political pundits that I hear talk about different things that are going on in our country, whether it's Republicans doing it or Democrats doing it or it's about the president or Chuck or Nancy, um, so so much of their comments about it and their understanding of it, it's not rooted in history. It's not, it's not even rooted in, fa- in fact. Um, I think about the, uh, the young, I think it's a congresswoman that's in New York um, who promotes socialism. And we, and we have... A number of um, elected politicians in our country that are of the social persuasion, and I would say it's because they don't have an understanding of Karl Marx and Adolf Hitler and the Soviet Union, and they don't know enough history. They they don't know how over the last hundred and fifty years. Socialism and communism have just devoured millions and millions of people because they didn't know their history. They didn't understand their heritage. And they were easily persuaded. History is important. It's important. You, you may not realize this, but there are, there are many places in the Bible where God points us back to history. And I want to share one of those places with you tonight. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It's in your notes there. It's on the screen behind me. But this is the Apostle Paul. He's talking to the church at Corinth. And he says to them, these things happen to them as examples. Now, now wait a minute. Who's them? And what things is he talking about? Them... That's a reference to the people of God. That's people in the Old Testament. These things are the events, the historical events, the things that really happened in the life of God's people. And so Paul is pointing them back to those things. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on when the culmination of the ages has come. So what does Paul mean? Paul is saying that Um, These things in the Bible, not just for the people who lived in the first or second century in Asia Minor, but all of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, all of us who trace our history back uh, to those first Christians in the New Testament and then the people in the Old Testament as as people of faith. But all, all of this is written down so that we can have a record of the lessons. Let me tell you something. One of the valuable things of, of, about reading the Old Testament, for example, is you can, you can know or you can see how God reacts to certain situations in the Old Testament 
And based on how he acted and responded then, you can understand how he's going to act and respond in the future. A lot of times that's exactly what the prophets were doing. The prophets were, were not necessarily, although there are a few examples where this is not true, but the, the prophets were not necessarily predicting the future. They were not predicting God's favor in, in that they were looking in the entrails of a cow, which is what a lot of soothsayers would do then, or they weren't looking in a crystal ball. They were just looking at the record. They, they were looking at how God had responded to things in the past. And based on how he had responded to things in the past, they could predict how he would respond to things in the future. So there are lots and lots of places in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that say things like, look back, remember, don't forget. Look back, remember, don't forget what? The lessons of the past. Learn the lessons of the past. I can't remember now who it was that said this, but um, those who are ignorant of the past are doomed to repeat it. You know, learn from the past and then move forward. Uh, when's the last time you were on a swing set? Been a while? been a while for me too but but uh you probably even if it's been a long time you, you remember how you start swinging right you, you sit down on the swing what do you do you lean back and as you lean back you push forward that's the way we should view history we we lean back on history we learn those lessons the lessons from the past because we don't want to be fools right we don't, we don't want to have to repeat the mistakes and learn, have to relearn the same lessons over and over again. So you lean back on the past and you push forward in the future. That's a good way of looking at history. Um, I think one of the most important things missing in the church today is we don't have a good working understanding of church history. And so there, there are really two reasons to study church history. One is God tells us to. Like in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, God tells us to learn it. And then number two, we don't want to be easily persuaded. By, by the way, if you have children and young people, one of, one of the things that you're going to hear me talk about on Sunday mornings in this series of Nehemiah uh, that we that we just kicked off this past week is is the importance of our children, the children that are growing up in our church, the little kids and the high schoolers and middle schoolers. It's important for them to learn the scripture. It's important to for them to learn the history of the church. It's important to them to spend some time in this adult service, not to get too far off on this, but one of the things that I've been concerned about for a few years now, honestly, is that a kid can grow up in our church, go from the nursery through river kids, and go through the flood and never, ever come into this worship center and and worship with adults. 
That's a problem. That's a problem. Because here, here's what happens. Here's what happens. No, no reflection on uh, creek kids, river kids, or the flood. No, no reflection there. But what, what happens, I believe, and, and not just at Rocky River Church, but the church all across the United States, once a kid graduates from college or from high school and goes to college, they have a childish, not childlike, but a childish understanding of the scriptures. And so they sit in that first English literature class or they sit in that first history class or that first humanities class with a really sharp professor that knows his business. And in 30 minutes, he can unwrap that kid's faith in God because they're easily persuaded. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the history of the church. They don't know why we believe what we believe. And in no time, it's gone. I hope we can uh, fix some of those things going forward. So here's, here's what I want to do tonight. I want to I wanna set the table for where we're going. Um. Our focus is going to be from about 70 A.D. to present day church history. But before you get to 70 A.D., there's, there's some things you need to know because the things that were happening in 70 A.D., they didn't just start happening one day. There's a context for that. There's a historical background. <coughs> so... I want to I want to back up before 70 AD and just give you some general historical stuff. And, and here's where I want to start. If you have a Bible, you you can turn it there. And if you don't, don't worry about it. But I, I want you to go to the blank page between Malachi and Matthew. Just a blank page. Most Bibles have them. I looked on my shelves today, a few Bibles just to... Make sure, and most of the Bibles I had on my shelf had a blank page. Or it may say, you know, it, it may be something like this where there's a, a blank page here, and then this next page says New Testament, and then it's blank on the back of that. But go to that blank page. Are you there? All right. That blank page represents between 450 to 500 years of history. It's called the intertestamental period, which just means the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And again, it it represents about 450 years of history. And a lot goes on. A lot happens there. And what I want to do is I want to start unpacking some of that. And we're going to cover about six centuries of, of history, Beverly, very quickly. But here, here's what it will do. It will give you a snapshot because we're going to big picture this. It's going to give you a snapshot of what the world was like when Jesus was born. Because Jesus wasn't born in a vacuum. 
no one is. There's a historical context for everyone. There's a historical context for Jesus being born in the world. There were things going on. The, the world was in a certain condition. And so there's a context for the birth of Jesus. There's a context for the birth of the church, which is his body. Okay, still with me? Everybody still with me? All right. During this time, during the, the blank page here, during this intertestamental period, there's one empire that's exiting world stage left, and there's another one that's entering stage right. The Greek empire is on its way out. It's in decline, and the Roman empire is on its, its way up. It's on the rise, okay? Are you with me? How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Show of hands, most of us. In 323 BC, Alexander the Great is dying in the city of Babylon, which is uh, modern day Baghdad in Iraq. At age 33, and think about this, at age 33, I don't know what you were doing at 33. I can sort of remember what I was doing at 33, but by age 33, he didn't even start at 33, but by age 33, Alexander the Great had conquered the world. Think about that. Though, I mean, he had conquered the world. And now he's dying. Now he dies. Now that creates a world crisis. Think about it. Uh, maybe you've heard certain historians go back and revisit the removal of Saddam Hussein or, or even how we did it, that maybe things should have been done differently because what happened is that there was a vacuum of leadership there. And so it just made the country disintegrate and made it open to other enemies. It just made for lots more bad things. And Saddam Hussein, for goodness sakes, was a terrible human being. Um, but anyway, the point is there was a vacuum of leadership. With Alexander the Great, <clears throat> the known world has been conquered by this one man, and he's a tough Macedonian. His father, Philip, was a tough leader himself. He taught Alexander how to rule with a, an iron fist, but now that guy's dead, and so what happens? Um, Alexander, while he was obviously very good at some things, um, he, like most potentates of that damn time, could not get over their own narcissism. So rather than having a plan for what happens after his death, he didn't want to think about that. He didn't want to even imagine that he's going to die. <clears throat> so there is no plan. So when Alexander died, Four generals start grasping for power. And they basically divide up his empire into four pieces. Four generals, four pieces. Only two of them really matter for what we're talking about. And that's Ptolemy and Seleucus. All right? Say Ptolemy. Seleucus. All right. Seleucus or the uh, Seleucids. These guys take over Iraq. Iraq 
uh, Syria and what we would call Jordan today. You've heard Jordan, I'm sure, many times on the news. Ptolemy, the other general, took over uh, the area of Libya and, um, and Egypt, okay? So think, think about those two places. And I think we have a map. Now, I, I don't know how, how well you can see this, but I have, a, I have a pointer. And I don't get a lot of chance to use this thing, but boy, I'm excited about it. So I'm going to pretend like I'm a professor show you some stuff here. <laughs> All right, so this area up here, that is uh, Seleucid. That's the Seleucid dynasty in charge up there. This part right down here, that's Egypt, Libya. That's, that's where Ptolemy's in charge, okay? Now, it's, it's so hard to see because it's... Um, it's it's black on the map. Am I in the right? It's it's right in here. Is that right? Um, is that right, Diego? Can you see it good on the screen? Right in here. That's Israel. Okay, right there. All right. So so look over here. You got the Seleucids there. You got Ptolemy over here. Well, generals. Uh, these two generals, Ptolemy and um, Seleucus, they do what generals do when they get power. They want more of it. And they want more control. And so they start fighting. And they don't go fight on each other's soil. They end up fighting right there. Israel. Israel's caught between those two places. Still is today, by the way. A state about the size of New Jersey is just encumbered with its enemies. They are literally all around them. But you can see how Israel and the Jewish people are caught up into what's going on. Okay, so Seleucus dies. His son, Antiochus, comes in and he takes over. You might know Antiochus as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means the appearance of God. Now, who do you think gave Antiochus that nickname, Epiphanes, the appearance of God? He, he gave it to himself, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's saying, have you ever known anyone that you thought they were God's gift to humanity? You're not sitting beside that person, are you? Um, that's what, that's what um, Antiochus thought of himself. And he ruled like a Greek god with an iron fist. And that also included Israel. Now, here's the deal. His daddy, Seleucus, you know, had this age-old battle with Ptolemy. And the Ptolemies down there in Egypt, Libya, but especially down in Egypt. So Antiochus is carrying on this generational hate. And he wants to go and finish what his daddy started. And so he's going to go and take Egypt from the Ptolemies. Gets his army up, 
heads down there. Uh, and he doesn't succeed. And um, there was a rumor that he had been killed in battle. Okay, listen to this. When the Jews in Jerusalem heard that Antiochus was dead, they replaced or they got rid of the high priest in Jerusalem. You've got to remember, everything happening in Jewish life revolved around temple worship. It revolved around their covenant relationship with God. So a high priest was like a president, but more. A high priest was like a prime minister, but more. And Antiochus, because he was in control and he really wanted to put the squeeze on these Jewish people, he hated them especially because he was was God and the people wouldn't worship him as God. You know why? Because they knew their history. So he hated him even more. He put his own high priest in there, and the the Jewish people resented it. So as soon as they heard that Antiochus was dead, they replaced him. Okay, now put that on hold for just a minute, because I want you to understand this. What Alexander the Great wanted to do is he wanted to make the whole world Greek, which is not unusual. Um... Is Karen in here? She, she's with kids. Uh, when I was at Gardner-Webb working on my master's degree, we went to Israel um, with um, Dr. White, the president of Gardner-Webb, and some of the other professors and students and graduate students. We went to Israel and Egypt. And... Um, We went to see the Sphinx. I don't have a picture of that, but you, you know what the Sphinx looks like. Well, his, his beard and his nose and chin are gone. The, the beard is in the, um, the British Museum in London, and they won't give it back. And I don't have time to tell you about it now, but I wouldn't give it back either. Um. How do you get the beard off the Sphinx? Probably because it was just laying out in the dirt. Why was it laying out in the dirt? Because when Napoleon and the French went through there, Napoleon wanted to do what most ancient people, and I know that uh, Napoleon, that's not necessarily what we would call ancient, but he, he wanted the world to think that civilization began with France. The problem is the Sphinx has um, a wide nose, big nostrils, and it's on the continent of Africa. It it looks like a a black man um, or an Egyptian man. It looks like a man on the African continent. And Napoleon, the rumor is, he had them shoot away the chin and the nose so that people wouldn't be able to go there one day and say, wow, you know, the Sphinx is older than France. 
So civilization couldn't have began with Napoleon. It had to begin at least with these Egyptians. You know, they were always trying to wipe the other person's history out. They wanted to be known for all history beginning with them. Alexander the Great was no different. It's called Hellenization, and it just refers to the spread of Greek culture and religion and uh, language and just that way of thinking. So look, Antiochus wanted to do the same thing. He wanted everyone to be Greek. And the Jews just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't be Greek. They, they did have to eventually learn the language, but they never would worship Greek gods. And some of these guys like Antiochus, it would just drive them crazy. But the reason they wouldn't give in is because they knew their history. Okay, now back to Antiochus. So he doesn't die in Egypt. But remember where he's got to go to get back home. He's got to go through Israel. And he's in a bad mood because he lost. And so he's looking for a fight. And really, really, he's not just looking for a fight. He's looking for somebody he can just beat on. And the people in Israel are not necessarily warrior kinds of people. And uh, Antiochus gets to Jerusalem and finds out that they've replaced his high priest. And he goes on a rampage. He, he massacred 40,000 Jews, rounded up about 40,000 more, and sold them into slavery. Then he decreed that the Jewish people could no longer worship their God. They could no longer read the, the law, the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, they could no longer meet on the Sabbath day. They could no longer circumcise their male children. They could no longer observe Holy days, holidays, festivals, and Passover. And so what happened is that the Jewish people kind of divided up into two camps. It's not like the Jewish people were completely resistant to being secular because they had done it other times in their history. So they divided up into two camps. And one of the camps just decided, hey, listen, this is our lot. Let's just go along with Antiochus and these new decrees. And um, then you have this other group that says, no way, we'll hide and worship. We'll do it in secret. We'll do whatever we can to survive. This guy won't live forever. And we're, we're not going to go with Antiochus. So can you see what's going to happen here? This is going to a, a bad place. All right, next. Antiochus went into the holy temple of God in Jerusalem and built an altar to Jupiter. Jupiter is the god of power. Then he sacrificed a pig and splattered the blood of that pig all over the temple. He desecrated the temple. Now, 
you, you don't have to even know a whole lot about Jewish culture to know that they don't eat pork. And do you know why they don't eat pork? God gave his people laws for their own good. He gave them laws to help them. Um, if if um, It doesn't really matter now because, you know, most of the pork we eat, I buy Smithfield butts that are now owned by a Chinese company, but they're slaughtered down in North Carolina. They can slaughter those, those hogs anytime they want to. But in, if you grew up, I almost said the old days, but older days, if you grew up on a farm where you slaughtered meat, when, when was hog killing season? It wasn't in August. It wasn't in July. It was in a cold, yeah, it's in cold weather months because you've, you've, if you're not careful, I mean, pork will make you sick. You'll, you'll die of it. Well, when God gave his people the dietary laws in Leviticus, they, they, did, they were not even seasoning meats. They were not drying meats out. They had no way to preserve it. So God told them not to eat, you know, pork or oysters. If you talk to my dad about oysters, my dad will tell you, you never eat oysters uh, in a month that doesn't have an R in it. Because the months with R's in them, that's cold weather months. If you eat oysters at a time other than a month that has an R in it, they're not fresh, they're frozen, they came from somewhere else, or you're going to get sick eating them. Well, they, they didn't have that same weather change where God's people was living. So he told them not to eat things that made them sick. They hated pigs. That's why Antiochus had this sow offered as a sacrifice in the temple. But it gets worse. Later, some of the Greeks came back to the temple, some of Antiochus' men, they came to force the priest to offer a sacrifice that would have been set aside to offer that sacrifice to God. He wanted the priest to offer that sacrifice, not on the altar of God, but sacrifice it to, to Jupiter. It was an old guy in the temple working at that time, an old priest, and he said, no way. His name was Mattathias. He said, I'm not doing it, and you're not doing it. Um, there's always a compromiser. Sometimes compromising is good, and sometimes it's not. There's a younger priest that was also serving there, and he said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll do it. Mattathias, I don't want you to get hurt and you know, it's just going to be a, a problem with these Greeks, so I'll do it. And Mattathias said, you're, you're not going to do it. Nobody's going to do it. Well, the priest went to offer the animal on the altar of Jupiter. Mattathias took out his sacrificial knife and killed the priest. Because, you know, sometimes you got to fight for things. And he made a stand. And in the temple that day, everything fell apart. 
because the priest, they killed all the Greeks. And so basically, it's like declaring war. Mattathias had five sons. They had to run out into the wilderness where they were kind of in hiding. When people heard about what happened, the Jewish people, they ran out to where Mattathias and his sons were and talked to them about raising up an army, which is exactly what they did. This is what started the Maccabean Revolt. It was basically years of guerrilla warfare. In this same family, there was um, there comes the, the name Hasman. And at the end of the Maccabean Revolt, and this is, this is important. I know this is kind of one of those things that can make your eyes glaze over, but there's a connection coming. This Hasmonean dynasty rules for about 80 years. This is 80 years right between the Greeks exiting the scene and the Romans coming on the scene. And they become strong. Obviously, they're not going to be able to hold off the Romans because we know how that history goes. But they become very strong. And some, some vitally important things happen during that time. Let, let's, let's get into that. All right. This Hasmonean dynasty comes to an end because of two brothers. Again, this is like 80 years after the Maccabean revolt, uh, revolt but it comes down to, to two brothers. Both of them wanted to be high priest. Why do you want to be high priest? Because it's like being the president. That high priest is the one who's talking to God. And that high priest, when he talks to God, he comes and talks to the people. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of control. And so they both want to be in charge. They start fighting with each other. But neither of them is able to overcome the other brother. Okay. These brothers are Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Common spelling if you're taking notes. Well, there's another general in the area, a Roman general. His name's Pompey. I think we have a picture of old Pompey. Yeah, there he is. Um, you know the word pompous? It, it, he's where we get it from. He was, he was quite a general, but also thought he was God's gift to women and men and everybody else. Um, but by the way, just to chase a rabbit here, just not very far, but when you see statues like this, you ever look at them and you're like, oh my gosh, man, they do so much detail to these faces. And then the eyes, there's just nothing there. Um, that's because at one time there were jewels in those eyes. But whoever got to these statues first, they chiseled those out. So they could have been rubies or sapphires or whatever topaz, whatever color he wanted his eyes to be. Um, but all of these statues, and when you see 
when you see the ruins of like the Parthenon and places like that, all these famous Greek buildings, they had jewels all over them. They had gold overlays over them. The Romans were, were great at being able to have spotlights that they could do it with small fires and glass or metals and things like that. I mean, they they had have spotlights and the spotlights would shine off of these jewels and it was, I'm sure it was a, a great thing. But his eyes, you know, you, you've seen um, paintings that the eyes in the photo, they look, they're following you. You can't get away from them. That's the way they would have made these eyes. But they would have been these, you know, big jewels and they would have followed you everywhere you went. A- anyway, Pompey was... Uh, he, he was quite a guy, a good general, but, man, most of these guys were really sick puppies, and he was. Anyway, Hyrcanus and uh, Aristobulus, uh, Aristobulus they, they're fighting over power. One night, Hyrcanus sneaks out to where Pompey is and talks to Pompey about coming to help him overthrow his brother. We'll pay you. There'll be trade-offs, that kind of thing. Aristobulus, unbeknownst to Hyrcanus, uh, did the same thing. And so now Pompey has a decision to make. Now, just a little snippet here. Hyrcanus and his followers were very serious about the Bible or they were serious about the Torah. They were very serious about being a covenant people in relationship with God. Aristobulus, or Aristobulus eh, not so much. Hyrcanus and his followers became known as the Pharisees. Aristobulus and his more liberal followers became known as the Sadducees. And if you remember these guys from the New Testament, Jesus has lots of problems with these guys, lots of problems. They hate each other. You know, I mean, long after the brothers are dead and gone, these groups hate each other. The only thing they can agree on is they want to get rid of Jesus. And so they partner up to have him killed. All right, back to Pompey. I promise we're going somewhere with this, so so stay with me. Pompey has to make a decision, and he's got an opening you know, Pompey, he's, he's, um, he's entrepreneurial. Um, he's always looking for something that could happen for him, something gives him, uh, you know, an extra summer home somewhere, somewhere to have a winter, somewhere that he can go and find beautiful women and, you know, just get away. Money, power, everything that comes with it. So who does he go with? He decides he likes Hyrcanus the best because he saw him as weaker and um, more desperate than Aristobulus. And he thought that in the future, he would be able to manipulate Hyrcanus a little more. So he goes with him. Aristobulus hears about this, and uh, he and his followers, who became known as the Sadducees, They go in and lock Jerusalem down. And it takes Pompey about three months to get into the city, but he does. 
And when he gets in there, he makes a really big splash. And the first thing he did is what he would have done in any other city that he had conquered. He went to the temple. Why the temple? Because that's where the good stuff's going to be. That's where the treasures are going to be. And, and listen, he's not a fool. He's a, he's a well-read guy, or he, he knows what's going on. He knows what Nebuchadnezzar took from there years ago, and that it had all been returned by Cyrus and the Persians. And so he's licking his chops thinking, what is in this place? So he goes in, which is, it's unheard of. I'll say more about that in in a few minutes when we get to Herod. But I can't even tell you how tense it would have been for these Jews now that they have a Roman, he's a Greek Gentile, but a Roman general in there roaming around in the holy places of the temple. What is this guy going to do? He's amazed. He's amazed because he sees the golden menorah, which will turn up on a, um, on a relief later in an arch in Rome after Titus comes in in 70 AD and destroys the temple and takes these items with him. Um, this is like a prelude to what's coming. Uh, Pompey writes in his diary all the things that he saw. Like his general, uh, general field diary, which would have been circulated among the other generals once he's dead and gone. So they would have known what the booty is in the, in the temple. The golden menorah, the golden lampstand, the golden altar, the, the altar of the showbread, the golden altar of incense, the silver trumpets where people would give their, their offerings, the tongs, the utensils, all that stuff is in there. And to his credit, Pompey leaves it. He turns around and walks out, says to Hyrcanus, you're now the high priest, cleanse this place so that you and the Jews can get back to worshiping God again. How does that happen? The only, the only way I can explain it is that it was a God thing. And a big God just told Pompey to leave that stuff alone today. By the way, have you ever heard of Hanukkah? You know what Hanukkah is? It's a Jewish festival of lights, and it celebrates the Maccabean revolt and the cleansing and the rededication of the temple that Antiochus and the Greeks had desecrated when they sacrificed the sow on the altar in the temple. I think it's December the 6th, something like that. See, everything has a context. So Pompey hangs around. He's kind of the cock of the walk still. But after a while, the people sort of forget about him, partly because another Roman general comes on the scene and he's 
making some serious noise. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar had conquered the Celts and the Germanic tribes. Now, as a part of conquering them, what you say to these tribes is, um, hey, listen, we conquered you. Sorry we killed all your buddies, or most of them, lots of them. Want to team up with us? Because we're going other places. I mean, you don't have anywhere to go. It's kind of like in the Civil War, after the Civil War was over. If um, your family, if you're from the South and your family's dead and uh, there are, there's nothing to go back to or you have PTSD or, or any number of things that might be wrong, what's there to go back to? So a lot of Confederate soldiers went out west looking for Indians to fight. Some of them joined up with the Union Army or other it became the Wild West after the Civil War because you have all these Civil War vets that move out to the, the, the Wild West. Well, Julius Caesar develops probably to that point the strongest, nastiest army the world had known, again, up to that point. I mean, the, the soldiers that survived... Julius Caesar, I mean, they had to be the best of the best. And so he got them to join up with him. Well, now they're going back into Italy. And Julius Caesar does something that no other general had done before, nor would they have dared to do this. He decided to cross the Rubicon River with his men. And that was an act of treason because soldiers organized for battle were not allowed to come that close to Rome. They had to stay on the other side of the Rubicon River. But Julius had a plan. He was going to march on the Republic of Rome and do away with the Republic and turn it into his Roman Empire. The problem is um, Pompey was kind of back on the scene and he and Julius Caesar were rivals and he decided he was not going to let Julius Caesar do this. The senators, some of them, went out to see Pompey and asked him to raise up an army to fight against Julius Caesar. They put together an army of about 50,000 troops. Now, Julius Caesar had an army of about 22,000 troops, but there's a big difference. The difference is Julius Caesar's troops are battle-hardened. They're nasty. And listen, they're not Romans either. They're Celts, and they're, from, they're German. They're from these Germanic tribes. And they already have a bone to pick. They like Julius Caesar, okay, but they hate Rome. They're wearing Roman uniforms but they hate Rome and so they don't mind being very cruel to these Roman soldiers they end up in a battle I think um, in uh, Pharsalus Greece and Julius Caesar's 22,000 just destroy Pompey's 50,000 Pompey 
hits the road. He's on the run. And he's going down to Egypt. Julius Caesar thinks if he gets down into Egypt and starts to reorganize, he could get those Ptolemies down there on his side. And I'll have to fight this guy again. So he does what MacArthur and Eisenhower wouldn't do in World War II and go ahead and fight the Russians while we were over in Russia. He decides he's going to chase Ptolemy or Pompey down into Egypt. Well, the Ptolemies capture Pompey and cut his head off. They didn't want to have anything to do with him down there. Julius Caesar is still on his way. When he gets there, uh, when Julius Caesar gets to Egypt, he discovers that there is a civil war going on between Liz Taylor and... I just want to know who was in the room with that one right there. Cleopatra. There's a civil war going on between Cleopatra and her brother, and it was over who's going to control Egypt. Well, the Egyptian army pretty much supported Cleopatra's brother, and they thought that Julius Caesar was really there to help Cleopatra. So Julius Caesar did not have all of his army there. He just had about 600 of his closest bodyguards, these tremendous um, Celt and German soldiers. And... um, They all get stuck inside of a palace there, and uh, they're in trouble. They can't stay forever, and they're trying to figure out what to do. One day, some Egyptian soldiers come in, and they're carrying a rug. They roll the rug out in the floor, and lo and behold, Cleopatra rolls out of it. And so now, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton are... They're stuck inside this palace. And, and what do they do? Uh, the Romans make all kinds of excuses for not sending troops there to help them out. And, and the truth is, they, they didn't want Julius Caesar back there. They already knew his plan. His plan, he's going to make this his Roman Empire. So they didn't want to help him. Uh, Julius Caesar couldn't uh, just, um, uh, he couldn't appeal to another country out there about the same size as Egypt because he's conquered them all. The Romans have conquered everybody. So he really is in trouble. And there is one guy that comes up to help him. One guy. And he is the high priest in Jerusalem. He gathered an army, and they went down to Egypt and freed Julius Caesar and saved his life. Okay, and I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Just in your reading of the the Gospels, does it ever strike you as odd that the Romans are so long-suffering with the Jews? They accommodate them in so many ways. Just the fact that they're able to have their temple. And by the way, the the Romans 
rebuilt a temple for him. It's called Herod's temple. It's not quite the same, but they went to great lengths to let the Jews keep their culture, let them worship their God. Um, why? I'll, 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 give you, um, I'll, give, I'll give you something else. You go with us to the Holy Land in September. We'll go to the ruins of um, uh, the Antonio Fortress. The Antonio Fortress is just a big closed-in stairwell that's meant to be a lookout. The Romans were, and they controlled Jerusalem. Okay, are you with me? They were not allowed to go on the temple grounds, let alone go into the temple. And they were always worried that maybe the Jewish people were up there plotting a revolt against them. But they couldn't go on the temple grounds. What do you mean they couldn't go on the temple grounds? They're the Romans. They own the joint. Why wouldn't they do it? So they built Antonio's fortress so that it was, you remember, you remember this, so they could look down in their Monty and make sure they're not in there plotting against them. They went to great lengths to do that. Boy, it really ticked the, the Jews off too. But they went to great lengths. Why would they do that? Why not just go? Because listen, Israel is a wonderful place. I, I love, I'm homesick for it, honestly. But in the first century, in the first century BC, it, it was an armpit. I mean, Herod the Great ends up there as the leader of that place, and it's a demotion. It's a terrible place to be and serve. So why not just go in and all these people that live in this armpit, just tell them what's up and do what you want. Because Julius Caesar said he would never forget what the Jews did for him in Egypt. And he decreed it as law that the Jewish people could not be impeded in their worship of God and their culture. He felt like he owed them that. So think about that. For a number of years, the Jewish people in their own homeland, but under the rule of someone else, lived under the protection of one of the biggest criminals in history, Julius Caesar. But all that's about to change. Because he dies... Caesar Augustus comes on the scene. Remember him in the Luke 2 story? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He's in control now, and he wants to count the people in the empire. Wants to know how many people there are. What's the taxes going to be? What can we squeeze out of Judea? What can we squeeze out of Palestine to go and expand our kingdom? Um, Caesar Augustus. Hated the Jews. Same reason that Antiochus hated them. Because Caesar Augustus proclaimed that he was the Lord God. And the Jews knew better. Why? Because they knew their history. They knew who God was. They were not easily persuaded. 
They wouldn't follow Caesar Augustus like others did, just blindly or whatever. Um, This is interesting here. Caesar Augustus appointed a new leader to be over Jerusalem and Judea, and his name was Herod. He was nicknamed Herod the Great, not because he was a great guy. He was an evil, violent genius. He was called Herod the Great because he was great at two things. Number one, brown-nosing leaders back in Rome. Number two, he was a great builder. And everything he built, except for Herod's temple, he put Caesar's name on it. And he felt like as long as he kept putting Caesar's name on things, he might be okay. Um, like, let me, let me give you, golly, okay, it's, uh, it's 10 after. I think we can do this. A L- little bit about Herod. He's an Idumean. Say that, Idumean. Idumean. Also called Edomites, okay? Say Edomites. Now, the Edomites are descendants of Esau. Maybe you remember the story about Jacob and Esau and Jacob kind of, well, Jacob and his mama kind of snookered Esau out of his birthright with a bowl of red stew. Edom means red. Esau had red hair. Now, keep this in mind. The Edomites and the Jews are cousins. Their daddies were brothers. Jacob was a good businessman. Esau wasn't that sharp, but he was powerful and a warrior, and his his descendants were warriors. They were tough people. Jacob was afraid of Esau really all his life, even when they kind of made up more at the end of, of his life or Late, at least later in life. Okay. They're cousins. The Edomites and the Jews, because their daddies are Jacob and Esau. Are you with me? They're cousins. In 586, remember from our story, Nehemiah? 586 BC, Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar come knocking on the gates of Jerusalem, tear down the gates, tear down the wall, burn the gates, destroy the temple, take all the valuable things out of the temple, take many of the people back home in Babylon to live as captives. The Edomites were just one hill over. They're warrior people, they're strong people, but they sat in the stands on their hands, watching their cousins be destroyed and even cheering for them as they destroy their cousins. Um, as you can imagine, Jewish people, they, they were trying to escape. Many of them did escape to the mountains. And the Edomites were over on the mountains going... Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, they're hiding right over here. 
Here they are. It was horrible. Can you imagine that? So the exiled prophets, man, they were really hard on these Edomites, as you can imagine. Okay, now fast forward. Herod is an Edomite. Now, do you think that that's a coincidence? Do you you think that Caesar Augustus just randomly picked Herod the Great, who was half Jewish and an Edomite, to be the ruler over Judah and even call him the king of the Jews? No, that's by design. That's because Caesar Augustus hates those Jews, and he's going to get them. He's going to get them. It'll take him time, but he's going to get them. And he knows, he, he knows the history. He knows how Herod and his people would have felt about those Jews, and that Herod would do whatever was necessary, no matter how cruel, to keep them in line. Like when Jesus was born, the wise men come looking for the king of the Jews. They saw the star in the east, and so they followed it out. And Herod the Great tries to play this little thing where he says, hey, you go and find him, and then come back and let me know so I can go and worship him too. Then the, um, the, uh, the wise men are warned by an angel to not go back through Jerusalem, go, go a different way, get, get out of here. Don't go and tell um, Herod anything. So what did Herod do? Herod had every male child, Jewish male child, killed under the age of two. He could have killed every male Jewish child, one and under, and accomplished the same thing. But he wanted to make them suffer because they're hiding this baby king. So just make even more parents miserable. That's the kind of guy he was. He was terrible to his wives, to his families. It was said of Herod that it's Herod killed several of his sons even when Herod was on his deathbed. I mean, he knew he was dying. And uh, have you ever read any of the, uh, the Bill O'Reilly books? Killing Patton, Killing Lincoln, Killing Jesus. You should read Killing Jesus. Now, it's not a devotional book. It's not meant to be. It's not a theology book. But in the first part of it, man, he gives a tremendous uh, and a tremendously accurate picture of Herod. And when he died, I mean, Herod probably ended up killing himself. He was just rotted with venereal diseases. And while he's on his deathbed, knowing he's about to die, he killed his oldest two sons, the one that would take his place when he died, and then the one after him, because he, was, he just couldn't imagine somebody's going to take his place, even his own son. 
It, it, was, it was said of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Um, killed his wife. His wife was said to be the second most beautiful woman in the world next to Cleopatra. Now, Herod was a builder. Uh, Caesarea Maritima, I was named after uh, Caesar because Guinea's sucking up. Um, Herodian, do we have a picture of Herodian? Do we, do we have a picture? of? Oh, yeah, 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 we do. Uh, I've been to Herodian a couple times. When we go in September, we're not going to go to Herodian. It's just in one of those places you don't, you don't want to go to. But this is a man-made mountain. Now, if I was showing you a landscape picture, there's a smaller mountain beside it. Herod, when he built Herodian, he said, I, wanna, I want to build my house on top of a mountain where I can look out and see Jerusalem. And he wanted his house to be built inside of a mountain. But they weren't really, that seemed too hard to go down and drill. So what they did was, this mountain wasn't there. So what he had his, his workers do is build everything inside of there that you see. And then the mountain that's over here, he had them take that mountain down and build it up around his house. I mean, that's what you can do when you have stupid money. Um, he built Masada. Um, he had a palace in Judea, Masada. Do we have a picture of Masada? Uh, so that's, that's Masada. And you can't really get a great, you can't really get the perspective of it because it's an aerial shot, but it is way up on the mountain. Um, this will come up when we start talking about Titus. And uh, this is one of the places that we'll go to in Israel. On the back side of that, there is a ramp. The Jews were hiding in that. Some of the Jews that had ran from Jerusalem, they, they actually got up in there and they were hiding. And the Romans spent about two years building a Roman uh, or building a road, a ramp that they could get their army up in that. Can you imagine watching that? Two years, you're sitting up there. I mean, you are eating all of Herod's food, but you're watching these Romans and they're building that and every day they're a little bit closer and eventually they, they, they do get up there. But Herod, Herod built these places. He has fortresses everywhere. Why? His wife, you know, I told you she was considered to be the second most beautiful woman in the world next only to Cleopatra. Cleopatra's husband, Richard Burton, Mark Anthony. Um, Mark Anthony and, um, and Herod were friends. But Cleopatra and Herod the Great's wife were great friends. And she had told Cleopatra about how Herod treats her. And Cleopatra had said to Mark Anthony, you should just go to Jerusalem and kill him. And Herod lived in fear and paranoia that at any time Mark Anthony and a couple of Roman legions are going to show up 
and kill him. Um, one more thing about this guy, and then we're we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. We're just about exactly where we need to be. Herod knew that when he died, the people in Judea, and they didn't call it Judea, they called it Palestine. You know why they called it Palestine? It's named after Israel's greatest enemy, the Philistines. The Romans did that, just kind of stick it in the Jews' eye. And, um, of course, the Palestinians today are descendants from the Philistines. Um, Herod knew that people in Judea would, would celebrate when he died. So he gave the order on his deathbed that the moment of his death, I can't remember how many leaders it was, but it was about 300 leaders and heads of families in Jerusalem that were rounded up and at the moment it was announced that Herod was dead, they were to kill all of those men. Because he had decided, you may not cry for me when I die, but you will cry. You will mourn. You won't be able to celebrate. That's the kind of guy that he was. Just a horrible, horrible human being. But listen, all of this... All of this sets the stage for Jesus to be born. Everything, all this turmoil, everything that's happening in the, in, the, in the world at that time is the backdrop for the birth of Jesus and the birth of the church. The, the church comes out of this world. The first eight chapters of the book of Acts are about the church staying in Jerusalem after that, you see the church branch out and begin to move throughout the world. That's where we'll pick up next week. And then very quickly, we're going to be out of Judea. It's going to be 70 A.D. Titus destroys and burns Jerusalem. They think for one last time, and it's on. All right. I didn't leave enough time here to... To take questions, and it's twenty after, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a prayer and dismiss us. But I'm glad you guys are here. You think it was worth being here tonight, night one? All right, all right. So um, I'll try to do a better job next week. No, I didn't see anybody asleep though. I appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to learn and learn together. And spend some time together, and um, and learn history. Lord, we know that the Bible is not just a history book, but it's full of history. And the the history and the lessons are here because you want us to know them. Lord, I think it's so valuable that we understand that the people that we read about in this book are names of people that are from places that we can find in any history book anywhere, that the artifacts of their lives are in the great 
museums of the world. We've seen some of the evidence of that tonight. So, Lord, our history is real. Our story is real. And so I pray that over the next few weeks, you would just give us an even greater desire to learn history and learn your word, and learn about you, and, and to understand that you're still a God who delights in using human means and human beings to accomplish your purpose and your plan and your will in this world. And show us how to be a part of that. We pray for each person here. We pray for the needs and concerns, the sickness and the cares that are represented here. We pray for those, Lord, in our community, especially who do not know your son, Jesus. It's in his, his great name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.